Hello, everybody. This is WCG Patient Radio. This is Steve Smith, Patient Advocacy at WCG. We are a company that focuses on the ethical treatment of people in clinical trials, speeding up the quest for cures and to make patient quality of life better. Today, we're speaking with Kristen Smedley. Kristen is the mom of two sons with retinal blindness. And how are you today, Kristen? Hello. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. This is wonderful. Yes, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you. You are um, not only the mother of two sons with retinal blindness, you have used your voice to share your experience and the context uh, in which uh, people live with retinal blindness in a way that benefits many others, including those with a wide range of other diagnoses. You're an active patient advocate, participating in policy-setting working groups, you're a voice on Capitol Hill. You're known on social media for, among other things, your awesome TED Talk. I hope people who are listening see if they haven't seen it already. Um, I'm hoping you can um, tell us about your sons and your family and their blindness and what is their diagnosis exactly and how did you discover that and what, what has that meant for them and for your family? Yeah, well, um, I'll try to bring it all down in a nutshell. And I'm so happy you mentioned the TED Talk because if people go and check that out, you get the entire, you know, beginning and middle, I say, of my journey because we've done a lot more since. But you can really get a, an understanding of what it was like in the beginning and, and the miracle moments that happened along the way. But but it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I laugh all the time now with as many blind people as I know in my life and and consider very good friends of mine. And raising two blind kids, I think it's, my kids think it's hilarious that I never met a blind person until my first son was born and diagnosed. I mean, so, you know, I, I chuckle about that now. I have a big smile on my face, the irony of that. But that day when, when uh, you know, he was only four and a half months old, my Michael, um, it was at that moment was the worst day of my life. Um, not just because I had never met a blind person and didn't know anything about blindness, but, and this is why I do a lot of, most of the work I do now, it was the way that that diagnosis was delivered that set me up to cry on my couch for more years than, than I'm proud to talk about. I mean, for a doctor to say I have, now this was 20 years ago, Michael will turn 20 in January, um, but for a doctor to say I have, there's no hope, I don't know what to tell you, uh, good luck, was, um, it was devastating. It was horrible. I was scared to death. I, I you know, and I, I think it's probably all of your listeners and, and you understand it's, it's fear is, is sets in when you don't, when it's the unknown. You have no education about something. You have no experience. And boy, I mean, I was, I was so scared of how to raise this kiddo. And, um, and, and even to take a step backwards, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a teacher by by nature, by DNA, by my whole life plan to be a teacher and have no information to move forward to to raise this little guy. Um, that really did, like I said, knock me onto my couch for for quite a while. Um, and uh, you know, then I I, I did get um, some information from. I was steered towards a specialist. Um, who happened to be at Wilmer at Hopkins back then. Now she's moved to a few different places. Irene Malmany, um, who's, who's pretty much the, uh, the godmother of LCA, which is the blindness that my boys have. We have the CRB1 mutation. 
of Lieber's congenital amaurosis. And um, your listeners might be familiar with LCA because of Luxterna um, being all over the news in recent years for the first ever approved gene therapy for for this inherited retinal disease. But of course, we're a different gene. We're the bigger gene, the more complicated gene. We're the overachievers in my house. Um, but um, I was steered towards her who was working with, a, um, in the very, I mean, can you imagine 20 years ago what a patient advocacy group looked like? It was a family that ran a, an LC, a um, Yahoo listserv. Remember those? I don't even know if they still oh, have yeah. them. And, and now you're the head of an organization called uh, Curing Retinal Blindness Foundation. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We, um, we're CRB1.org, literally just so that, that all the SEO and Google would, you know, any patient, parent, genetic counselor looking up CRB1, we want to be the top hit so they find us. Yeah, now it's a global organization for this specific disease. We've come a long way from that LCA listserv, huh? <laughs> so you've talked about um, the... Uh, found pharmaceutical company that has a clinical trial based on a mutation. What about the importance of um, genetic diagnosis with this disease? Yeah, you know, so there's a big push for genetic diagnosis because there's a there's a you know one treatment for one set of mutations in this one gene where the, I think our umbrella disease of LCA has 22 known genes and inherited retinal disease as a whole, there's 275, I believe. So it's one sliver. There's a big genetic, uh, genetic testing push because most people think it's about, oh, well, there's treatments coming. And there is a lot in the pipeline, which is great. Um, but a lot of the blind community isn't interested in a treatment. Um, they're living lives just fine. And so a lot of people, or they think that there's no possible way this is still future science. There's no way that there's going to be a treatment available for them. And I'm out there saying, you know what? <laughs> Unfortunately, we need genetic testing to get the definitive, just in CRB1 alone, the definitive CRB1 diagnosis so that we can say to imagine this school district in the United States in this day and age are not, quote, believing parents or not providing services unless you can give documentation that you have a definitive degenerative retinal disease. So, so to back up for a sec, in CRB1 retinal disease, half the patients like my boys have early onset from birth, lifetime of degeneration happens, and they're braille readers, white cane users from birth. The other half of the patients, however, are not noticing a problem until maybe third, fourth, fifth grade. So these kids are are learning right alongside everybody and all of a sudden get thrust into Braille, cane, large print, all of that. So as we're educating parents to say, oh, you have this mutation of CRB1 by about you know, 11, 12, you're going to need Braille. They're trying at five, six, seven to have their kids learn Braille and schools are telling them no. So we are pushing on um, genetic testing for, for services, which is, ooh, it's such a pain point for me. However, um, it is what it is. And that is just something people don't consider when you hear genetic testing. I think everybody ultimately says, oh, for a cure. Nope, it's also for living and thriving. Yes, this is a theme that runs throughout a lot of rare disease diagnosis where time is of the essence because these kids' education is is progressing and the, the time is running out for them to learn certain things as they quickly grow up. 
And then, of course, they are um, trying to learn a language as well if they're learning Braille. And so language learning happens easier if you start young. So you're, you're talking about things where the clock is ticking and without the diagnosis and the services, people are going to lose out. Well, and, and yeah, and then there's, if, if they can, like, like the moms that I've talked to that want these services early because they know that it's generative, that, it, it's a beautiful thing because that eliminates, when that child then loses the ability to read print, but all of a sudden there's that Braille right under their fingertips, so they're not losing, any, there's no gap in literacy, there's no gap in advancement, that, when I tell you that is like 90% of the battle, the, the, the literacy and independence for a blind person is the biggest frustration, the biggest pain point. If a, if a child doesn't have to ever experience that gap, then their acceptance, they're, they're continuing to thrive. They're all of those things that so many of the kids and adults with blindness have such a hard time about and, you know, and all of the, the support services and, and the high unemployment rate, all the things attached to that, you know, that can be eliminated just by not having a, a gap in, in literacy. Yes, yes. And you used the word thrive, which um, brings me to uh, something people who are listening should know, that you have written a book called Thriving Blind, Stories of Real People Succeeding Without Sight. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Because people sometimes look at a person who has some kind of disability and writes them off, and they might say, well, of course they're doing slow in school. They're, you know, and then they name the handicap. They're blind, they're in a wheelchair, they're short, they're deaf. And those things are not uh, really supposed to be impediments. It's, uh, it's the, um, the public's mistaken view that makes it that way. So tell us about um, the success and the, cap the potential that you've seen in your sons and the messages of your book. Yeah, and, and you hit the nail on the head. It's all about perception. And I, I actually am, am writing a new book about this whole concept about perception and how you perceive things and, and your outcomes. And for me, I perceived blindness as a nightmare because I didn't know anything about it and I was living a nightmare. But what happened for me, and you see in the TED Talk, is that my son at three years old changed my perception. It's a beautiful moment that I'll let folks go and and, and hear more about that. But what also happened for him was when Michael was six years old, I took him to meet um, here in, in, I'm in Philly, and uh, we have this big award ceremony where they bring in whoever is the top dog in the blind community that year that is inspiring and breaking barriers and, and whatever. Um, and when Michael was six, it was Eric Weinmayer who had just come off of Mount Everest as the first blind person to summit Everest. And he has since gone on to do all seven summits and all kinds of crazy stuff. But, um, he had just come off Everest. So imagine, this is where I saw the power in role models. Um, and, and it's uh, uh, Daniel Coyle that says in the talent code, the ignition that happens when you see somebody do something that you want to do or think you're capable of doing. Michael, at six years old, meets a guy just like him. I mean, he's funny like him. He's blind like him. He's a wrestler like Michael was. And he just came off Everest something no sighted person he has ever met has ever done, right? So his yeah. mind at that moment, any possible barrier that may have existed in his mind is, is he going to be able to do something like sighted people was blown, it was blown up and out, it was gone. And his, his barriers only became what sighted people were limiting him with. I mean, he comes from that 
meeting and then we're of Eric Wyan there, then we're sitting in an IEP meeting, individualized education plan at one of the top public schools. We moved to the school district for the fact that it was top. And they said, oh, he's only going to find his, his cubby and hang up his coat 70% of the time. He'll get a 70% on his math test. And that's 100%, you know, for him, just like he said, because, oh, Kristen, he's blind. That's 100%. And I was like, yeah, so there's they're selling him short, right? They're saying they're not expecting the same thing out of him when he's, of course, blindness doesn't have anything to do with your ability to learn math, right? Exactly. But for, for that, and I, I am very careful that when I deliver that message, because I used to be so angry about it, but I mean, people only know what they know, right? And that was my call to action to educate and inspire that group. As a matter of fact, the principal of that school took the entire IEP team to hear Eric Weinmayer speak because he wanted them to understand why my mind was so blown and so open to the fact that Michael could accomplish anything like climbing Everest if he wanted to. And it changed everything. So every year since that moment, I've taken Michael and Mitchell to either that event or other places to meet people that are blind like them and, and doing things that they want to do. It's not necessarily climbing mountains or all these amazing things. It's living the lives that they want and then let Michael Mitchell talk with them. But if people, you know, if your listeners are thinking about it, you do that with your kids all the time anyway. It's just, it's more accessible. Like, you know, last night I'm watching the, oh my God, that's why I'm so tired today. I was watching the Eagles Giants game, right? So, so the kids that want to be, maybe play football someday they get access to those role models every day on tv you know my daughter a, was a soccer fan for a long time she had access to carly lloyd we actually went and met her because um, that's a role model just sighted kids have a little more access um so i took the kids around and and met all these folks and then i thought look i everyone kept asking me how is michael i mean michael became every dream i had for him as a sighted kid that i thought was gone he accomplished as a blind kid. He just did it differently. And one of the big things was valedictorian. I don't know why I just envisioned I had a valedictorian. And isn't he then chosen as, they, they call it commencement speaker now. But, um, you know, there he is with every possible, I have this slide that I do in my presentations where Michael's at the, at the mailbox as a kindergartner, right? When they expected him to achieve 70% of the sighted kids. Same mailbox. I took a picture because he's my first board. So you have pictures of everything they did, right? So he's at the mailbox in his graduation gown and cap, and he's got all those little braids of, of all the honor societies that he achieved and, and a stole from student council because he was on the executive board for four years. And this medal that I don't even remember where the medal was for, but he had all these awards. I mean, he out achieved 600 kids in his class then stands up there and speaks and inspires them to go out and, and do better, you know? Um, so as everybody's saying to me, how did you do that? Who am I to sit on all of that knowledge and knowing all those people and not hand it over to moms like me that are crying on the couch over that diagnosis? And, and honestly, it started as a brochure. I wanted every retina specialist to hand this little brochure to say, it's going to be okay you know, here's some inspirational stories. And then it became this book that is now becoming a program for teachers of the visually impaired. I mean, it's, it's amazing, but, but really it was to inspire people that um, blindness does not have to be the end of the road. It's just the beginning of a new journey. 
Yeah, I think I've heard you say before that people who are blind can do just about everything except see. And I've heard that yeah. for uh, people who are deaf will say that too, that we can do just about everything except hear. And so it's, a lot of it is changing public perception, which is why your um, outspoken um, participation in um, the community is so important. Yeah. What should we know yeah, about somebody who is... That... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to ask... I would actually argue. <laughs> Pardon me? I'm laughing because we both have so much to say. Go ahead. You go on with your question, and then we'll we'll come back to this if we need to. Okay. I was I was going to ask you um, what uh, you mentioned earlier in the call, the um, the cure for retinal blindness and the um, foundation, but also some of the medicine that's happening. What are your priorities for change in science and medicine, and um, how do the patient communities um, see that? potential for treatments? Yeah, so, well, at, at the Curing Retinal Blindness Foundation, our mission started as research only. Research to a cure, research to a cure, that was our mission. And then I was getting the phone calls as we got bigger and bigger and more known, and I got very good at social media marketing. Um, I, to this day, get a phone call, email, text, or social media direct message every single day from a parent that just got the diagnosis of their blind child. I'm actually getting them from adults losing their vision, too. Um, and I went to the foundation and said, I don't think that this is serving our community well to simply be focusing on a cure. We need to hold these people's hands. This is going to take a while. And all these families are sitting on the couch together waiting for the day of the cure. And these kids have all this potential and nobody's tapping in. So we split the focus, which a lot of nonprofits will say don't do. But I, I just felt like it was immoral at that point. We weren't serving them well if we didn't. We split the focus and we, we um, do fund research. Um, we're also the, um, that's like our number one where our, where our funding goes. But we also put tools and resources out there for um, parents to come to and, and people losing their vision later in life to come to. Um, to understand how to how to thrive with blindness, not just survive diagnosis day and and a little bit after that, but really to turn around and thrive. It was an interesting it was an interesting um, plight to get folks to get their head around the fact that you can work on a cure and you can work on resources for living with blindness because honestly, and actually there was a pharma that said to me. When everyone was trying to get that first, that Luxterna approved, back in 2017, there was a group that came to me and said, hey, could you stop talking so much about thriving with blindness? We're trying to convince the FDA that we, we really need a cure. Like, simmer down. It was so funny. But, um, but I do believe, and, and Spark Therapeutics that, that developed Luxterna agreed with me, and, and I champion them all the time because they brought the entire community together to under the umbrella of respect for the patient where you can, and they did, develop a treatment, a cure, well, this is a treatment, it's not a cure, but also supply the community with resources for thriving because in the end, it's, it's my mission. Um, I will know that I am a success when we have options for a cure on the table and our patients it is the hardest decision of their lives whether to pick that cure or not because we've armed them so well with resources 
to live with blindness that they don't necessarily know that they want their lives to change. I want it to be the hardest decision for them. And that's a moment. That, that is a wonderful um, direction. And the, the way those things come together, you've expressed so beautifully. Um, I, our time is out. And I think really thank you for coming today and talking with us all. Um, for the listeners, we have been speaking with Kristen Smedley, the author of Thriving Blind, Stories of Real People Succeeding Without Sight. Check out her book. Uh, check out her TED Talk. There's a lot more to it. And um, thank you very much, Kristen. It's been wonderful talking to you. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for the great work you put in the world, too. Thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs>